Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to the Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career? So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today's amazing guest is Ryan Burke, who most recently was the Senior Vice President of International for Envision, the leading design collaboration platform used by 4 million people worldwide and 100% of Fortune 100 companies. After helping Envision scale from 30 to 850 fully remote employees and to over 100 million in annually recurring revenue, making it one of the largest fully remote companies in the world, Ryan is now actively helping remote teams thrive in the new environment. From hiring, communication, culture, and tooling, Ryan is helping companies build and manage fully distributed teams. To find out how Ryan can help scale your remote organization, check out ryanburkremote.com that's ryan r y a n burk b u r k e remote.com ryanburkremote.com in this episode we talk about how ryan burk got his start in the sales field his learnings from his time at envision traits of the top sales folks and how designers can get better at the art of selling ryan I'm so excited to be chatting with you my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. There's something about it like just talking with you I can tell if nobody had mentioned to me that you are typically a sales guy just like the way you talk and and everything. It's just it's amazing. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I think. I think. I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. So here I am chatting with you. You're a sales uh, veteran. How did this all come about? What sequence of events led you to kind of pursue a career in sales? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think anybody sort of grows up saying, "Hey, I want to be a uh, you know, I want to play in the NFL or I want to be an astronaut. I don't I want to be in sales." I don't think anyone ever sort of starts out with that as their uh, as their kind of dream, but I think for me personally, like it's just one of those things that it it sort of fits me from a personal professional strength standpoint like I naturally am really good at connecting and building networks and one of those people that you know I could pick up the phone and call anyone you know from the past 25 years in my life and I genuinely keep in touch with a lot of people you know work friends all of that and that's translated really well to a field like sales and so for me it was less about wanting to be specifically in sales as it was I wanted to be in tech and i started out in finance i worked at goldman sachs i was one of the few people that made the mistake of working in finance in san francisco during the internet boom and um yeah that just wasn't for me right it just wasn't from a culture standpoint and you know personal motivation it wasn't really that interesting to me and so 
wanted to get into tech, sales was a great way in to kind of leverage some of my strengths. And then it's one of those things where over my career, sales has sort of enabled me and to touch different parts of the business. And that's always kept really rewarding for me moving forward. So dialing back a little bit, you were at Goldman Sachs. And what happened after that for you to kind of get the idea or the hint that, okay, I think I'm just going to now transition to the official title of sales, or this is something that everybody's saying that I'm really good at? Yeah, it was interesting. I was on the West Coast at the time. I'm a Boston, I'm a Boston guy. I was on the West Coast at the time. I wanted to get back home. I was at Goldman. Home was great. You know, it puts you on a particular path. And I could recognize pretty early on that wasn't the path that really personally inspired me. And so it was at the kind of the tail end of the internet boom when everybody was moving online and figuring out how to digitize their strategies. That was really interesting to me. And so I moved back and got hooked up with a company called Mainspring, which was basically a bunch of, you know, really strong consultants from, you know, Banging and BCG and McKinsey that got together and created this firm focused specifically on digital strategies. And so that was like super interesting at the time and very inspiring. And, you know, I was also doing sort of business development for them at the time. And, you know, we had a, we had a good run. Yeah, I ended up going public at the tail end of the boom and then getting acquired by IBM. I won't tell you the share price pre and post, but it was definitely a fun ride. And that was where I first sort of got interested in, um, you know, talking to people about their particular issues, about the, the challenge of, you know, opening up doors and, you know, having these types of conversations with senior level folks around these really big business issues and then ultimately helping to become part of that solution. And that's where I really got kind of inspired and sort of the bug around the sales side. And then you're growing up, you went to college. And during these times, what was your earliest, I want to say, encounter with sales? Or did you pick up a book and learn about sales? Or was it just... Yeah, funny story I've told before, but the, um, the, first in, the, the first sort of sales experience I had was back when I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13, growing up in a suburb of Boston. There was a lot of snakes in the neighborhood. And so I was always catching snakes. And so came up with snake busters, made some t-shirts with a buddy and we'd go door to door and we'd knock on people's door and for a dollar, we'd go through your wood piles and go through your <sighs> yard and we would, and we would get as many snakes as we could. And so, um, you know, made a little money. That was my first sort of entrance into sales that was quickly ended when my mom came home and found, you know, a giant trash can, you know, out by our pool with about 40, no snakes, about 40 <laughs> snakes in it. So that was, that was the end of that endeavor. But that was probably the first taste I had of, of sort of the, the, the commercial aspect of sales. That is absolutely amazing. And then, if I'm not mistaken, you have two boys right now. I do. A couple boys. They're 8 and 11. So as you go about teaching them about sales or if they ask you like that, teach me about sales, how do you go about explaining these principles to them in a way that I think if they can understand, anybody can understand? Yeah, that's a good question. I, mean, I don't think I necessarily teach them about sales necessarily. I mean, there's a couple of things I'll teach them about business, just, you know, little silly things. We've got, you know, they each have a, a small stock portfolio that, you know, I'll let them, we'll talk through, you know, maybe they buy a share of Microsoft so they understand like the Xbox they're using translates to potentially the share price or Netflix, like their whole portfolio is Disney and Hershey and Coca-Cola, all products that they know, but then putting it into a tangible business context around sort of the stock. So that's something and trying to trying to teach them at an early stage, and then other than that, it's like it's not specifically about sales, but I think it's more the important aspects of being knowledgeable and and adding value. And 
you know, it was interesting for me, you know, when I entered the design space, like that was brand new to me. I had to basically send myself to design school, read about the industry and understand the pain points. You know, that's some of the things that I'm teaching my kids. It's not about closing deals. You know, it's about understanding different things and being knowledgeable about everything. Like they probably play soccer exclusively if I let them, you know, but I want them to play other sports. I want them to play instruments, get creative with iMovie, watch and learn things outside of just their core interest to make them more knowledgeable overall, because I think that's ultimately what's a good characteristic for any success in any field. And I think, but certainly uh, for sales. So you're entering this new design space, you're joining Envision and you're trying to read up about it. What was different this time compared to the traditional companies where you work at and you ramp up the sales processes? What was different this time when you entered uh, the design space? Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, I joined Envision in 2014. There was only maybe 35 people at the whole company. I was introduced to Clark Wahlberg. And, um, you know, at the time, Envision had, you know, an incredible product from a bottoms up perspective. They were getting, you know, hundreds of people signing up for the free product uh, every day, every week, or putting their credit card down for the personal plan. And they wanted somebody, uh, they wanted me to come in and help them stratify and build the enterprise motion. So it was interesting because you already had this froth of people that loved the product and were passionate about it. But then when you're, you know, you go in any, any kind of sales role, you sort of think about like, who's, who's the target persona? And for Envision, it was obviously designers and design leaders. And, you know, the, 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 the quick thing you understand, you probably want anybody, designers don't like to be sold to, you know, they don't want to talk to sales Absolutely. People, right? They want to touch and feel a product and figure out how it works and if it's useful. And if they like it, they'll use it and they'll tell their friends about it. And so it was a very different motion. It was very much a, you know, kind of a pull motion versus a push where your sort of traditional sales motion is you're pushing out to the market with your product, or your message to try to get people exposed to it, where Envision was already doing such an incredible job of sort of pulling people in through not only the product, but then also through kind of the content and the community. And that was one of the things that was really interesting to me about Envision was the value that Envision was delivering to the design community beyond just the product. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Envision that I think goes for, goes for any business is, you know, figuring out who is the hero of your story. And for Envision, the designer is clearly the hero of the story. And that's, you know, 100%. And everything Envision does is about being authentic to that, to that hero of their story. And that's why the content, the community, the events, all of these different things are helping that hero. And the product is just one component of that. And that was what was really interesting to me about Envision and sort of the sales motion at the time. But it was also fairly, fairly intimidating and daunting as well, thinking that designers don't want to talk to salespeople. You know, as you move upstream, one of the other things that's interesting in design, with Envision is as you move upstream to these bigger relationships of enterprise collaboration software for design at scale, designers don't always have the biggest budget. And so then you're going into this world where the person that may ultimately write the check for something like Envision is very different than the person that would actually be using the product. Oh. And managing that is a very interesting opportunity with, uh, with something like Envision. And Envision's an incredibly good job of, doing, of capitalizing on. But that's not always your sort of normal sales motion where you go into a CMO and boom, they've got a line on them for this product and boom, they buy it. And their whole team uses it. This is a little bit different in the design space because design is still sort of emerging in the overall business context. There's not huge line items, especially, you know, 
almost six years ago when I started Envision, design in the business context was still very immature. So it's almost like instead of just selling top down, you also had to have the team focus from bottoms up approach. Yeah, exactly. Because that bottoms up interest was already there. And then through the free product or the personal plan usage. And so, you know, getting those folks, you know, similar to sort of what Dropbox did back in the day, getting those people to have a voice, figuring out who within that, you know, footprint of existing users, like who could ultimately help you as you started to sell internally. Because the first thing to do when you start to go top down is they're going to say, all right, well, let me talk to my design team. And you have to have already established that relationship. You're establishing value through the product, but you also want to establish that relationship there. And so it's sort of marrying that top down with that bottoms up interest and engagement that's already been built through the product and through the rest of the, um, the value that you're delivering. While interacting with Envision, some of the amazing sales framework or ideas that I came across are, one was, I believe, the design disruptor screening where literally all the big companies in Dallas were showing that and got the whole community really excited. Then the other idea that you mentioned in your talk is delicious empathy. Every time I had a lunch with one of the Envision folks, it was never 100% just about, you know, doing the deal or closing the deal. It was about, hey, what's going on in your life? How can we help you? So how did you instill that in the culture? or How did you guys just brainstorm those ideas? Yeah, it's a good question. And just, you know, for those who didn't maybe don't know kind of the story on the design disruptors Envision, you know, when I first started Envision again in 2014, Clark, the CEO, was like, ah, we're making a movie. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, we're going to make this movie on how innovative companies have used, you know, design to disrupt their industry, whether it was Netflix or Airbnb or Google or whoever. And so we made this feature length, you know, super well produced movie and Envision wasn't in it. It was just, again, it was some value that we were delivering back to the community for the hero of our story. And so we did a world premiere in San Francisco at the Castro Theater. It was awesome. We had the red carpet and the, you know, all of this stuff. And then we did one in London. Then we did one in New York. And the goal was ultimately to, to then sort of release it to the wild. But then we had so many people reaching out and saying, hey, can you host a screening of this? I'd love to show this to my executive team on why design is so important. Because at the time, especially, design was still at the front end, you know, Envision was still, or design in the business context was still at the front end of this kind of wave where things were moving. Everybody was hiring designers, hiring first chief design officers. And so this film was another one of those vehicles to help evangelize the power of design and how it could change business outcomes and disrupt entire industries. And then everybody wanted us to show it. And it was great because it was a great touch point for us to have, to go in and have a conversation with people or get introduced to more business you know, folks. And so Envision's done, I don't know, probably 500, 1,000 screenings now across the world. And there's you know, subsequent films that have come out. And that was really important to Clark, you know, being authentic to the community, providing that type of content. And the similar one is on this program around Delicious Empathy, which was another one of Clark's brainchild, which was anybody in Envision, no matter where you are, Envision, you know, 800 plus person, fully distributed company, had the opportunity to take a designer to dinner, lunch, whatever, for a meal once a month and expense it with the only rule being you can't talk about Envision. So it was about how do you build those relationships and, you know, how do you understand the, the hero of the story from a personal level? I'm like, build that empathy. And so that was really important. And, you know, to your question, you know, how do we sort of embed that? I mean, Envision, you know, I'm a, I've always been a big 
kind of culture person and values person. And, you know, vision has some good values that, especially in a remote environment, you've got to really manage to hold people accountable to, but most importantly, celebrate. And so things like we have one that is uh, go getting and go giving, right? And go giving. What are you doing to give back to people on your team? What are you doing to give back to the broader community? Like really making that part of the fabric of the organization. And that's where things like the movie and the content and events and all those things, that's actually part of Envision's mission to be giving back to the community and to the design persona. You said it's not about just closing deals, but giving value. Yep. As a salesperson, why do you say that? You know, because again, I think that there's a few things. One, I think that, you know, we talked about the fact that designers like to be sold to. To some extent, you know, sales has shifted overall. You can read any Harvard, Harvard Business article about how you know, people are already making decisions on the software purchases before they talk to a salesperson. And so I think you really need to figure out as a salesperson in today's environment, especially in the design world, like what are those opportunities to add value to somebody to build that type of relationship? So when the commercial aspect does come up, you know, you already have that credibility. And so, you know, a great example of that would be Envision did this design hiring report surveyed 2,000 product designers across the world yeah, on motivations around, around hiring. I mean, the hero of the Envision story is the designer and the design leader. Their number one issue is not what collaboration or prototyping software. Their number one issue right now is hiring. How do they attract talent? How do they keep talent? How do they motivate and engage talent? How do they develop career pathing for their talent? Like everybody's hiring designers. And so Envision did this incredible thing where they built this you know, piece of content that was, again, it was an opportunity for Envision and even the sales team even to go and add value to, you know, whoever that potential champion was. And so, like, I was a big believer on, you know, my sales team making sure that they were enabled so they could talk about that. Envision also did a design maturity report. I wanted the sales team making sure that they could talk about that. They, they didn't need to bring in some expert on the team or some, you know, the Stephen Gates of the world. They could talk about that. Like the content was there, train yourself on it, learn it, go add value to your customers. And that I think is also what is rewarding to sales folks at places like Envision, where you're not just pushing paper. If you want to just push paper and make a high commission, you know, go to Salesforce, go to Oracle. Great. But if you want to be part of something as a bigger opportunity and, you know, help create your own story and all of that, then you go to places like Envision or other fast growing SaaS companies and do things like add value beyond just selling software. That makes sense. It absolutely does. It's almost making me think that the underlying product that one sells does matter. So if you were to start a sales uh, force at a different company, then what you're selling, the underlying product, is going to make an impact on how you set up that culture. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you know you're going to set up a different team and a different culture and a different profile for depending upon the stage of your company or the stage of the market that you're going after, for instance. You know, Envision, when I first started, the, there weren't a lot of internal resources for the sales team. And it was very much a, you know, a product-driven sales motion. You know, you got the product in people's hands. They were playing around with the free product. And so you had to sort of be able to talk to them about the nuances of the, of the features. And you had to hire accordingly and build a team that way. But then as you move up to the enterprise, and back to my point about, you know, the ultimate people that are buying or writing a check for a large enterprise, you know, deployment of Envision, they're not the ones using it. Then it's more about value. What is the value? How is the needle being moved internally? What is the financial benefit of that? And that you know dictates a different a different sales profile, a different motion in the sales process. And so you've got to sort of design it 
like no good sales leader is going to say, Hey, I've got this awesome process and wherever I go, I'm just going to implement it. Like, I don't know. I don't buy that. I mean, the reality is you need to go in now and understand the market, the motion, the maturity, all of those things, and then build the process, the profile around that. And that so was, just that for... was difficult. It was difficult a little bit in the design space because there wasn't sort of a pre-existing kind of sales process or you know motion in place and sort of the design sales and sort of the design business context was was still fairly new, especially when I started Envision. Just hypothetically, if you were to set up a new sales team within a company in design space, just for you know to make it narrow. Yep. What are some of the things you would look for, you know, hypothetically in a salesperson? Some traits, certain things that you think would make them a good salesperson? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it depends, obviously, on a lot of different factors, but I think some underlying, you know, the understanding what motivates them. I think that's a really interesting one because, you know, again, if somebody's going to be coming in from a sales perspective and just motivated for money, then an early stage startup is probably not the right place for them. And you got to uncover that early on, you know? And so, you know, I'm a big sort of believer in this whole concept of writing your own story or creating your own story. You know, my sales folks in Envision sort of roll their eyes if they heard that. But, you know, I want people to come in and be motivated by building their story. And they're joining the company at that time because they want to help create you know, or contribute to the overall company mission that will then ultimately contribute to their story. And, you know, especially in design right now, I mean, shoot, there's not a lot of design-flavored sales talent. So I feel like it's a great place for salespeople to be. But as long as they're there for the right, for the right reasons. Another underlying trait I would say would be, you know, kind of resilience. I think that the um, resilience around, it's going to be a startup. You know, things aren't always going to work. There's not going to be as many internal resources. I mean, I've personally made the mistake of bringing in people probably at the wrong stage where people came from, you know, really well-established, successful companies. And these people were really successful, but the maybe it wasn't the right time. And you need more resilience. You need people that have had their nose bloodied, you know, somewhere else. Like, I like to go out and find people that maybe had a really successful run somewhere and then went somewhere else and... Maybe the company ran out of money or maybe they started their own company and couldn't get funding or whatever happened. Because that shows the type of resilience that ultimately you're going to need at, from a salesperson, especially in a, in a startup environment. And the last thing I would just say is sort of the, I don't know, you know, people that can, can, can build relationships. And I think those are important both, you know, internally and externally. I think about the best salespeople in the companies that I've uh, worked at, the sales teams I've managed. You know, they have great trusted advisor relationships externally, like they're adding value, they're building these relationships. But internally, like if I were to go and look at the top salespeople at my last couple of companies, they're the ones that have the best relationship with the product team. They're the ones that have the best relationship with the marketing team. They're the ones that are, you know, understand, you know, the nuances of the data and the operations. Like they're building those bridges and those relationships internally as well. So those are probably some of the, the biggest things for me that I'd be looking for. Trusted advisors. I love that word. So I'm trying to like think about how your brain thinks about these things when it comes to building these relationships. So imagine with me, you're talking to a potential client, trying to close yep. a deal. You know that has to be done. You've met this client for lunch. What is going through your head? It's like, is there like a process like, hey, let's just like get to know each other, then the sales will come naturally? Or is there a process or is this just something like an art that one has to believe in? It's probably a little of both. I mean, I think that's where you're never going to walk in and you know, build a relationship right there on the spot. And then, 
have that translate to them helping you with a deal, right? It's going to take some time. And so that's why, I don't know if you go back to sort of the traditional sales vernacular of, you know, building champions, like you really need to build a champion relationship to help with a potential client when you're trying to close the deal. And how do you do that? And that's why, you know, I think back to Envision, things like the community aspect of it, you know, hosting design leadership dinners, spending three hours with people to understand them, delicious empathy, obviously, but those types of things. And I think what you need to do is you need to understand, you know, not their role or, you know, their goals or their pains and and related to your product, but just in general. Like, how are they measured? How is the person that you're talking to going to get a promotion at their next review? Like, figure out how to uncover those types of things. Because once you figure out those types of things, you understand their motivations. And those are the types of things that you can ultimately, you know, leverage when when you are, you know, at the goal line trying to get a deal across. But you've built the credibility with the person at that point by understanding their pains, their motivations, their measurements, all of those things. And so... It's not easy, but you're going to have to spend time with people. You're going to have to spend time with them outside of the context of just talking about your product. And that's why I think events and dinners and lunches and all of those things are actually incredibly valuable to help you build those champion relationships. The perfect example I can think about this, Ryan, is I was working with uh, Brian Munzer uh, at the time, and we were trying to wrap up a deal with AT&T. And, you know, we hung out quite a while outside of work, just, you know, chatting about life and my goals and ambitions. And I think I had casually mentioned uh, my interest in, you know, um, learning more about the VC world and the venture yeah. capital space. Next thing I know, uh, Brian Munster goes back and talks to Seth Shaw about, hey, is there anything we can do here? And then this, I remember that this moment very profoundly. The next day in my inbox, I had an intro to Vasner Trajan from Excel Partners. And yeah. I don't think ever any of these other, you know, huge design behemoths have done that. And this was just like unheard of, like, wow, you're really, really going above and beyond trying to help me not just to close the deal, but you genuinely care as a company and people. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, Monster's great. But that's exactly it. Because I think the other thing that I think the good salespeople also understand is that, you know, you may move on and, you know, designers and just like, you know, everybody else, like, they move around quite a bit. And so it's less about necessarily getting that one deal, but it's also about building that relationship for, you know, when somebody they're dealing with becomes the next VP of design at Spotify or wherever it is, or ATT, wherever it might be. Because people move around so much, like it's important. It's important that you're not just chasing the dollar, that you are doing things above and beyond, that you're empathetic with the design community. And that's why things like introducing you to Voss, who's on the Envision board, is great. Or you know, even within the design leadership forum that Envision maintains, you know, it's a really good connection point to say, hey, you know what? We understand you're dealing with this particular issue. Well, you know, we had a conversation with this person. They've got the same issue. Why don't we connect you two? Right. And so again, your Envision is inserting themselves into this community and maintaining this and doing it for the value of everybody in it by connecting them. And so those are like the little things that I feel like can be, you know, sometimes underappreciated at these larger organizations where, you know, it is more about pushing product versus building the relationships. I really, really hope that more of the design recruiters in the design industry, especially in Dallas, I think, get to hear um, you talk about these things because one of the personal pet peeves I have as a designer is, you know, you'll get the random message on LinkedIn or email that, hey, copy paste, here's this design position. 
are you interested? Just apply for it. And I'm like, did you even take the time to learn right. about my motivations and goals? And you just kind of right. spammed me like everybody else. Right. Exactly. And that's obviously goes to goes to sales as well. You know, and doing a little bit of different research. I mean, there's always, you know, I have salespeople going on site to do a big, a big meeting. Obviously, I'm expecting them to understand the company or, you know, read the latest press releases. But there's other things like it's a public company. You can go into their earnings report and see what the highlights are on the digital transformation or go look at their job boards. What is the person that you're talking to? What is that person hiring for? Is there an opportunity to help there? You know, looking at, you know, Twitter and all of these other things that you can do that are around what the big initiatives are from a digital perspective that will ultimately help you have a better conversation with that person. So that type of research goes a long way. And the bar is pretty low in the sales world, to be honest. Like It doesn't take a lot to stick out because not a lot of people are doing that to the extent that they should be. Why are they not doing that? I think it depends. I think one, you know, on one hand, I think that, you know, there's a there's a level of preparation and detail that probably not every salesperson is sort of traditionally known for. And, you know, I think salespeople are trying to move deals in and out as fast as possible, right? And so this one's not going to work out, move it out. And so they're not investing enough. They're not doing enough upfront to invest to see if it is a quality, a quality opportunity or quality relationship. And so I think it's just a time and preparation thing that and maybe it's not on the salesperson, maybe it's on the sales managers. You know, maybe they're not managing to that enough. And if it's a transactional motion, that's probably fine. If somebody's selling, you know, a thousand dollar, you know, product, that's probably fine. But as you're moving to more of an enterprise motion and more of an enterprise sale, you know, that type of preparation is incredibly important and is what will differentiate you. Because in a lot of cases right now, I don't know, a lot of these products in some of these markets. They're all pretty good. You know, there's a lot of markets out there yeah. where the top three to five products, they're all pretty good. And so uh, in a lot of cases, I think people underestimate the value that a differentiated relationship with a salesperson, like you talked about with Munzer, or a differentiated process. What does the actual process look like for evaluating your product? Is it, you know, an RFP? Is there an ROI analysis? Is there a mutual action plan? Like all of those things can differentiate. What does the onboarding look like? What is the handover from sales to customer success or client services or whatever you call it? All of those little things are points of differentiation and beyond just the product. And so those things are becoming increasingly important. And so if you have salespeople that are invested more in those little, those little touch points, what's coming down in the product roadmap? How do you get product feedback on some features? that your prospect had some feedback on? How do you get that to the product team? Did they follow up on it? Like all of those little points are what really separates good salespeople can ultimately help differentiate a product. I love it. And you've interacted with a lot of designers um, from your time at Envision. And one thing yeah. I am absolutely going to admit to you, Ryan, is that sales is not something that comes naturally to designers. It's at times something that we just kind of despise, like, oh, we don't want to go out and sell, like our product should speak for itself, which is, you know, dandy, but not always true. Sure. So maybe it's a two-part question. One is, why do you think that designers are not always by default the best salespeople? And second, what are some of the things that designers can maybe read or understand about the process to become better at selling or just moving opinions? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a I think there's a few things. I mean, design's going through sort of this renaissance right now within the within the business context. And so much of that has to do on the impact 
that design has on business outcomes. You know, design is always saying, yeah, we don't have a seat at the table. We don't have a seat at the table. Well, you do have a seat at the table now, but with that comes accountability. And so you need to have an understanding of how what you're doing from a design standpoint is translating to the overall business or, you know, commercial outcomes. And so I feel like there's more that designers can do to understand that. It was interesting. We were at one design leadership dinner. I don't remember where. And one of the design leaders was saying he was basically giving his team an internal MBA. And it was more about training on sort of basic business vernacular because they were being brought into these meetings more around the financial impact of whatever they were doing, but they weren't fully equipped. And so I think designers need to invest more in understanding how what they're doing is going to translate to the business. And that's ultimately, you know, you talk about design, building empathy, well, build, into, build empathy with your internal, you know, counterparts. I think also designers sometimes, they have such a unique view of the product of the market. And I think that's sometimes undervalued by themselves. I think like, that stuff is gold dust to the rest of the organization. And the more that designers can figure out ways to package that and communicate that to the rest of the company around how what they're building is going to change sort of behaviors in the particular market they're going after. Like, I feel like there's more that designers can be doing to share that to inspire the rest of the organization. And so I think understanding more about the business outcomes, I think understanding how to share more about their view of the vision, I think those are things that will ultimately help them understand and become better at selling or ultimately just changing people's opinions. Any favorite books you have on sales that you recommend to new team members? Or maybe it doesn't have to be related to sales. Yeah, I would say there's a couple, uh, maybe not even related to sales. The one is the, I don't know if you ever read the five dysfunctions of a team. Ah, um, yes. It's a good one because it's kind of written as like a story, you know, and I just think that would even be more important, like equally important for designers to read. You know, it's very business focused. I think there's like the CTO and head of sales and head of marketing are in it. But it just talks about the importance of building that trust internally and how you focus on results and having this healthy debate. That's really interesting one. The other one I really like is uh, our old CMO at Envision recommended the, the Power of Moments. It's a book by was it Chip and Dan Heath on... Yep. Yeah, you may have read it. It's just all about like how do you create these memorable moments, either in your personal life, and I, I live by this from a personal perspective as well, or from a business context. And I think it's really important, especially when you're at a, when you're at a startup in a fast-moving environment. How do you make sure that you are focusing on creating these moments that ultimately, you know, five years from now, you're going to look back on and say, you know what, that was a moment when we made that change in the product or when we won that deal or when we did this offsite. Like making those things really memorable, like that's all about building people's overall story. And so I think the power of moments sometimes you know, or they even talk about in the book, people's first day at work. You know, what an incredible moment that is. What an incredible opportunity is to define somebody's first moment. Not a lot of companies do a good job with. And so that one to me is a, uh, is a really powerful book as well. What is your favorite failure that later set you up for success in terms of sales? Like, is there a deal early on that didn't go the way you expected and that had a profound impact on you or change your process? I think a couple things. I think one, you know, I talked a little bit about hiring the right people at the right stage. And making sure you're mapping those two. You know, I think another thing, you know, in Envision, we, you know, was helping to launch the international business. And we created this design maturity index at Envision. And it was sort of bucketing companies' design maturity into, into these five different buckets. And, you know, one of the things that I think we didn't do a good enough job with is sort of 
building the motion and the, the go-to-market based on the design maturity of particular markets. And it's really hard to get that data. So like it wasn't, but it was too often of, hey, this stuff worked maybe in, in the US. So we're going to translate to these other markets. And design maturity, you know, most third parties will say is probably three to five years, depending upon the market behind kind of the US market. And so, you know, that translates into things like smaller in-house design teams that are then surrounded by, you know, multiple agencies. And that changes the way you can you can sell a product like Envision. That changes the way that you that you go to market. And so I think understanding the nuances from a maturity perspective of whatever there it is that you're you're selling in different markets is something we could have done a better job of. And yeah, it's probably one of the things that, you know, we'll I'll take with me uh moving forward as well. I love it. And then you also do angel investing on the side, is that correct? I do. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A little angel investing, a little consulting. How does that come about? Do you actually just, you know, have good relationships with the VC firms and then just co-invest on their deals? Or is it you are actively seeking out different, different, or what does your deal flow look like? Yeah, it's evolved. I mean, when I, you know, I'm living in London now as part of the, you know, the assignment that I was on for Envision. But when I was in the Boston community, you know, I saw a lot of opportunities from people that were just within my network or people that maybe were on my team at one point and then went and started their own thing. And so from that perspective, I was investing a lot in in people, people that I knew, people that I believed in, people that were hustlers. And it was fun, you know, I wasn't writing, you know, giant checks or anything like that, but it was fun to sort of, you know, invest in people like that and, you know, watch their journey evolve over time. You know, now that I'm sort of in market and looking for my next opportunity and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of quite a few deals even coming from Europe right now, you know, and it's interesting to me to see what are the signals of product market fit that they already have? What areas of the market are they going and trying to potentially disrupt? What does the team look like right now? Like all of those things are interesting to me. And, um, you know, obviously from my experience at Envision and sort of the collaboration and design space, like I've got a pretty good understanding of, you know, sort of how some of the, you know, these large companies operate internally that can help translate to where I would put my money from an investment standpoint. And also even from consulting, like some of the companies that I've invested in, I'm helping them, whether it's, you know, introductions or there's a lot of companies that are going through a similar journey from Envision where, you know, they've got a really good early stage product and they got these great signals from maybe early adopters, but now they're trying to figure out how to move upstream. How do they make that evolution into into the enterprise? And that's something where, you know, I've got a lot of experience. So that's been fun. And then the last thing would just be remote, you know, having managed, you know, a remote team. I do a lot of talks and conferences and blogs and on the remote thing. So I've had a lot of companies come to me and companies that are sort of in my portfolio as well that are remote and looking for best practices on how to manage and build remote teams and specifically remote sales teams. So those are some of the things that I, uh, I kind of layer on to some of the angel investing that I do. I love that. The passion around people and hustling. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about a a scenario where you have to work or either consult or join a company that has a really young founder. So how does that dynamic go about given that, I mean, you're obviously more experienced, more seasoned and older than this young founder. How do you manage those relationships or those conversations where it's not like you have to listen to me because I'm, you know, more experienced than you? Yeah. I mean, I think... So much of that just comes down to, you know, how receptive are people to feedback, myself included, right? And what type of culture do they have, right? Because you've got so many of these visionary, you know, CEOs out there today 
but ultimately, especially as you move upstream, like you've got to be able to take f- feedback, especially from maybe folks that are a little bit more operational, have more sort of experiencing kind of the business side. So as long as people have that, you know, behavioral trait around being open to feedback and having trust and building trust, then like I have no problem with, you know, how old somebody is or where they are in their career or anything like that. But uh, that, that's probably the biggest thing for me. And trust can be trust can be hard, right? Because you've got people that maybe are coming in from, you know, they don't have a lot of industry experience or they don't know the, the product very well, or even in a place like Envision where it's fully remote, like you've got to be able to build the trust to have the difficult conversations. And that's ultimately what, what would, uh, you know, kind of make, a, uh, make that dynamic that you talked about work. Are there also pet peeves you're looking for? When you look at these new opportunities, like, okay, this is a red flag. So for an executive like you, what are some of the pet peeves or red flags? Pet peeves? I mean, I'm clearly, a, you know, sort of a remote advocate at this point. And I understand the office environment. I mean, shoot, I'll probably go back to an office environment. But even with everything moving towards the, uh, moving towards the remote with the current sort of, you know, external climate, it's interesting that still so many people are still just hanging their hats on the office. Now, you can't do this remote. You would never be able to do this for You'd never be able to have this kind of brainstorming conversation. You'd never be able to. And I get it. If you want to have an office environment, I totally understand that. But I guess I don't believe in the people that sort of emotionally say that remote doesn't work. And, you know, there's some pitfalls to remote, no question. But this whole belief that the office is the only way to do certain things, I just, I just personally don't buy into that. And that's a little bit when people say that, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not going to be the best place. Uh, be the best place for me. I couldn't agree more with you. In in my time that I spent in um, the office of corporate America, I found that it's fun, but a lot of time their productivity is wasted with yeah. uh, things like, oh, are you here at 8.30? And like just certain things that like, oh, your work doesn't decide whether you get promoted, but like, oh, whether you were there every day at 8.30 or not. And that's just sometimes right. not everybody's meant to do that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't know. I think with the whole current climate right now, I think people are sort of building the muscle for remote, which ultimately I think is going to translate to healthier businesses moving forward because they're getting better at communication and documentation and you know onboarding and remote, all these things that ultimately you should be enhancing anyways. But I think we're, now that everybody's remote, it's going to force people to become better at some of these foundational you know tenants that are going to ultimately benefit everybody moving forward. Absolutely. Any final parting words for my designer friends, including me, advice on how to become better at selling? Yeah, I mean, I think design is probably the best place to be right now from a career perspective. I just, you know, everything is obviously moving towards the design. And I think it goes back a little bit to what I said about the, you know, the impact of what you're doing on the business context. And that's why you're seeing the advent of like design operations, you know, whatever it's been called, like that's kind of a newer role in the last couple of years. And that's because design is increasing at scale. And so you need more discipline around communication and tooling and measurements. And so I feel like, you know, as much as you as the individual designers can learn about things like, you know, what is the design operations person doing and measuring and all of those things, because those are ultimately going to get reported up. And those report that reporting up is going to dictate do you get more resources? Do you get more tooling? Are you hiring more? All of those things. So I feel like connecting that. And then, you know, I think just continuing to build those relationships. Like if you are a designer and you don't know a salesperson at your company, you should. Because I guarantee you that salesperson would kill to understand your perspective 
on the product and what you're doing. And I think you'll hear a lot of things that you would be surprised about of what that person is hearing in the marketplace. And so I think I would just invest in those types of relationships that maybe aren't as, as sort of intuitively natural. That makes perfect sense. Ryan, thanks a ton for taking the time to chat with me and sharing with me your wisdom on how to become better at sales. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. If you made it this far, you are what I call a Design MBA super fan. And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.